0: all right welcome to faith church glad you are with us today if you're new around here my name's matthew one of the pastors and it's a joy to have you in the room or online if you have a copy of the scriptures with you join me in matthew chapter 24 if uh, you don't have a copy with you but would like to follow along you can pull out your cell phone scan the qr code that's on the screen I'll take you to a spot on our central hub where you can follow along with the scriptures and all of the notes, Um, and today will be a great note-taking Sunday. I'm going to do a little bit of preaching and a good bit of teaching and informative instruction today, and uh, you will be able to tell the difference when I'm doing either or, I promise you. That Matthew chapter 24, uh, real quick while you're finishing getting there, connect groups are all launching this week. I want to encourage you and ask you, if this is your family, if this is your church, would you at least take a first step and go to the central hub and review the options for connect groups that are available and be willing to maybe just maybe ask the Lord, Lord, should I do this or not? Chances are, the answer is yes. So, just take the first step. The other thing I wanted to say is I'm really excited for our Youth Connects that are all kicking off tonight, 5 p.m. here at the church. We have one for middle school, 6th, 7th, and 8th, and one for high school, uh, 9th grade through 12th grade. Now, our Youth Connects are a great place for them to discover authentic relationships to have other caring, godly adults who are pointing them in the ways of Jesus, and three, those that are helping them grow in their own faith and allegiance to Jesus. If you are looking for something for your kids and your teenagers to be entertained by, and just sit back and have some other entertainment programming, uh, they can have Disney Plus and Netflix at home. We're here to help people encounter Jesus and grow in that. Uh, But they will find some great friendships and other things along the way, and so I really encourage you, to get them connected and plugged in tonight, 5 o'clock here at the church. Matthew 24, we're starting in verse 26. We started in on this chapter last week. If you missed it, go back and look at it. Um, Watch it on YouTube or on our central hub. Get caught up on some of these things. Jesus is in a two-chapter discourse teaching us about the things that will happen in the last day. Everybody say last days. Last days. And this is what he's helping us understand. We're going to start in verse 26. These are the words of Jesus. So if someone tells you, look, the Messiah is out in the desert, don't bother to go and look. Or look, he is hiding here. Don't believe it. For as the lightning flashes in the east and it shines in the west, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. Just as the gathering of vultures shows that there is a carcass nearby... So these signs also indicate that the end is near. We talked about six of those signs last, seven of those signs last Sunday. Verse 29 Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then at last the signs of the son of man is coming will appear in the heavens and there will be a deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send his angels with a mighty blast of a trumpet and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven now learn a lesson from the fig tree when its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, you can know his return is very near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. Will you say that with me? Only the Father knows. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood... The people were enjoying banquets and parties and Super Bowl parades and weddings. Right up until that time, Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. So you too must keep watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time. For the Son of Man will come when least expected. Let's pray. Jesus, these are your words. And like you told us, everything can pass away in our world that we can see and know, but your words would still be standing true. So Jesus, I pray that you would be revealed as true and every other man a liar. As we look to your word to understand what you've taught us on how we can be faithful and loyal to you. We pray this in the name of the Father who loves us, the Son who died for us, and the Holy Spirit who lives within us, and the people of God said, amen. Amen. As we are unpacking and talking a little bit about the last days, theological term is eschatology which just means study of last things. Jesus is teaching and telling us things and truths about the last days, what what it's going to be like in the end. Now, some of you are new to following Jesus. You've not really grown up in church. These are some new words for you, and you are brand new to this very subject. Welcome. I I believe that God's going to teach you and show you some things that are true that you can hold on to and that develop great hope in you. Some of you are coming into this and you've grown up in church, you've been around, you've heard some things before, and you're coming with a pre-arranged kind of thoughts on some things. You've got some understanding and some things that you believe the Bible has taught and shown, and you're kind of coming with those things, and there's a bit of a filter and a grid that you already have as we're talking about these things. Wherever you're coming from and whatever it is that you're holding to, I want you to know that there are people on many sides of this topic and discussion who love Jesus deeply, hold to what they believe the Bible to be true, and will one day celebrate in eternity with us all. That's good to know that when it comes to eschatology or understanding last things, there are very few essentials that we all must agree on. The other things are extra peripheral things that are good to understand and grow that do help us have an allegiance and awareness and be ready, but they are not central to the salvation of your life, nor central that we all hold the exact same understanding and ideology about. There are some things that are really crucial. Jesus was the son of God, fully God, fully man. He died. He was buried. He was resurrected. He, was, uh, he, uh, he ascended into heaven and is seated in, in heavenly places right now. And he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. These are essential that we agree on. There is only one way to heaven. There's only one way to find eternal life, and it's through a relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit. That is the way. There are some essentials that we hold to with great fervency. There are some non-essentials that we deal with with some liberal, uh, with liberality, with some freedom. And whichever one we're talking about, we're going to be people who walk in love and humility. This is one of those secondary things as we look at the last things. But Jesus taught it. And because Jesus was teaching his disciples these things, it's important that we understand what Jesus was saying. Why? Because if we don't start with what Jesus said, we may live a life Jesus never wanted us to live. If we don't start with the gospel that Jesus proclaimed, we may live and perpetuate a gospel that Jesus never taught. We want to start with what Jesus said. And here's the big idea that regardless, if you're new to the subject, you've been around it for a while, you've studied and you've got charts and books and readings and you've done this for a long time. Can I just tell you, here's the main deal. The radiant people of God eagerly await the return of the Son of God. I'm going to say it one more time and allow the radiant people of God to add a hearty amen to that. The radiant people of God eagerly await the return of the Son of God. Very good. You're doing great. One of the things I want you to see is that Jesus is anchoring his teaching in the Old Testament. In fact, today we read... Two of those uh, such references, last week we read one, he was referencing some things in Daniel, this week he's using some illustrations from the prophet Joel, and he's anchoring in the Hebrew scriptures to Noah, that's really important, why? Because Jesus himself didn't teach anything that wasn't rooted in the scriptures, He anchored all of his thoughts and understanding in the scriptures that they had at that time. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures. And in verse 29, when he says the, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in heavens will be shaken. That sounds really terrifying, if it literally happens. But Joel was a prophet who was prophesying, and Jesus was linking to his text, and this is apocalyptic language, or apocalyptic literature, which is less literal and more pictorial, more symbolic. In other words, every time you see a shooting star, that's not an indication Jesus is about to get ready and you better repent for the lie that you just told. In verse 30, when it says that, He's going to come on the clouds of glory. Again, more apocalyptic language and literature. That doesn't mean as you're driving down Highway 69, you need to look at cloud formations to see if you see the face of Jesus. Or that if you're cooking grilled cheese, that the Mother Mary appears in your grilled toast. All of a sudden, God's trying to give you a message. No, your butter just burnt your toast in a really awkward way. Don't read into things that you don't need to read into because you're trying to take something literally that wasn't intended to be taken literally. Jesus wants you to know that he is coming again and we eagerly await his return. Let me give you three things that I think this text is indeed speaking to us as it relates to last days and times and the return of the son. Number one is this. The king's return will not be secretive. It's not going to be a silent return. What does he say here in chapter 4? He says, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Anybody sat outside when a tornado was coming and watched the lightning strike? Were you able to see the lightning or was it a little bit secretive? Like, I'm not sure. Was that really lightning? No, you were quite aware that was lightning. It's not going to be hidden. You're not going to show up to work one day and everybody's gone but you and be like, oh my gosh, I think God came back and I missed it. (laughs) It's not going to be some secretive moment. It's going to be clear And obvious. He said he's coming back and it's going to be like a trumpet sounding. Have you ever had a fourth grader learning to play the recorder at home? It's anything but silent. (laughs) Oh no, you can hear that recorder all through the house. Ever have a child learning to play a horned instrument? Whoo! Make a joyful noise. Oh dear Lord. Really? You can hear it. You can tell. It's not some silent secret thing that happens. This is a big part of what Jesus is trying to help them understand. So they didn't walk in fear and they knew it wouldn't be secretive or silent. Let me give you some key terms as we unpack some eschatological study. As we study these last days, last times, end time things. Let me give you some key terms terms that it's good for us to be on the same page as to what those mean. Can I do that? Here comes the teacher Pastor Matthew for just a few minutes. Here's the first term that's important for you to understand is the word millennium or 1000 years. Now the millennium refers to a period of time literal or symbolic where Jesus will reign and rule on the earth. The second term I want you to hear is the word tribulation. Often in the New Testament, it's listed as tribulation or trouble. But the word tribulation refers to a time of distress and persecution for the church. Sometimes referred to as, quote unquote, the great tribulation, where there is an intense period, seven years of hardships for the people of God and the world. And the seven years could be literal or it could be symbolic. But that's the tribulation, the trouble that Jesus was talking about and talks about and the New Testament writers talk about. Here's the third word that you may have heard and may have never heard. It's an extra biblical word. In other words, it's not explicitly in scripture. It's a word that we use to define and talk about things that we think scripture is talking about, but it's not a, a Bible word itself, okay? And that's the word rapture. Rapture refers to a time when the people of God will be caught up with Jesus. Traditionally, the rapture involves leaving the earth and going to heaven. These are important terms to understand. Why? Because. If we're going to understand that the return of Jesus is not secretive as Jesus was articulating, we need to understand what are kind of the popularized Christian views or theological camps, if you will, perspectives on the Millennium Tribulation and Rapture. There are three popular views that people hold to or categories, if you will, of theological thought When it comes to interpreting and understanding what Jesus just taught us, what 1 Thessalonians and the Apostle Paul is writing about, and what the book of Revelation is about that the Apostle John was writing and talking to us about, three major views. The first view is called pre millennium. Everybody say pre millennium. Christ comes physically and bodily back to the earth and reigns on the earth for a period of 1,000 years. Most premillennials believe that the 1,000 years will be literal. This position can be further divided into kind of two subcategories that are pretty major in our understanding. The first is called historic premillennialism. Some early church fathers held this view. And it says, at the end of the present age, the world will experience a great tribulation. After the tribulation, Christ will return, the Antichrist will be judged, and the righteous will be resurrected to reign with Christ on the earth for 1,000 years. It relies on a more literal reading of the book of Revelation. And again, some early church fathers in church history, orthodox, believe and held this historic premillennial view. Number two, dispensational pre-millennialism. It says that a strong separation between Israel and the church. It believes that Israel has a predominant role in the millennium and God treats Israel a little different than he treats the rest of the world. Rapture takes place before the tribulation period to rescue and retrieve the saints of Christ, dead and alive, always to be with him in heaven, uh, a way to be with him in heaven, rather. And this is often referred to as pre-tribulation rapture or mid-tribulation rapture. That is the dispensational. Now, it's important to note that dispensational premillennialism is not a historic church tradition of thought. It is one that has only been popularized since 1880. Around 1883. So it's less, it's a little more than 100 years old in its understanding and circulation of thought. I'll tell, say more about that here in just a minute. So those are the two kind of subcamps of pre-millennium. Are we tracking? Post-millennium. Here's the second kind of viewpoint and theological uh, category for end-time things. Says this: the summary is that Christ will come and reign after one thousand years. The one thousand years not translated literally, but millennium. But the millennium began at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The world is getting better because of the gospel's advance. Now there are some historic um, fathers and early believers who hold on to that. It is a min- minority of a landscape of people in current. Um, theological circles that hold to this view, but it has been present for a lot of time. In particular, the reason why many would kind of walk away from this thought process is because as we look around the world, it seems like Jesus says, the world's trouble will only increase and not decrease. And while it is true that we are called to be ambassadors who spread the good news, who take residence and state claim, bringing the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven, that is part of our call and our ambassadorship. And just because the gospel is being preached everywhere, doesn't necessarily mean that the entire world gets saved and comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus. That's the second major ver- uh, viewpoint, if you will, as it relates to the millennial rapture, end times, and such. Then there's a third a big category for theological, and it's called amillennialism or It It is belief in a realized or inaugurated, and I really like that word inaugurated amillennialism, a belief in a realized or inaugurated millennium that is already, but not yet. The 1,000 years is symbolic and began at the resurrection of Christ. Christ is reigning in heaven with the fallen faithful saints now. Therefore, for this position, there is no rapture, Rather, the rescue of God's people will come in one act with the final coming of Jesus. The culmination of the 1,000 years, symbolically interpreted, happens when Jesus returns. Now, I grew up with a certain uh, one of these viewpoints as kind of the paradigm of my understanding as it relates to, to last day things. Uh, in fact, over the last year and a half, I've just slowly and pretty steadily been studying this and kind of taking what I've always held to be true in my kind of presupposed kind of filter on these things and kind of begun to weigh them out on Scripture and study a little deeper because I really did want to understand some things. But before that, for most of my life, I kind of had like this uh, this pan Eschatology, In other words, it's all gonna pan out in the end and I'm gonna be on the winning side. Don't really care the details in between then. Because my knowing the details aren't gonna change what's gonna happen. And I can just trust God, it's all gonna work out in the end as long as he's my Lord, my Savior, I'm gonna pursue him and everything else will work out all right. It's kind of where I landed. But I kind of began to study and the Lord's kind of drawn me into some things. And I grew up, in an environment where the predominant mode of understanding was the dispensational premillennialism. Believing that the rapture would come and holding to this understanding that there's value between Israel and the church and those things are different and, and God's going to come and he loves his people and God wants good for his people and so there is no tribulation for the people of God. He's going to get us out of here in time and we're going we're to be there. In fact, uh, when I was a kid we um, in kids' church, Uh, our services were like two, two and a half hours long. That's right. Some of you get complaining and your bottom starts hurting after an hour, get over it. It could be a lot worse. And when you have 100, 200 kids in one environment for two, two and a half hours, you've got to do some things to help them get the wiggles out a little bit. You know what I'm talking about? And so we would do this thing. They would play some music and we would do what they called rapture practice. It looks something like this. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Because you know, when Jesus comes, if you're not jumping, you're out, right? Like jump to help him because he doesn't have enough eternal suction power to get you up. You got to like help him. And those of you with small verticals, you're out of luck. I'm going to get there first. Like that was... That was my my perspective. That was kind of what I understood and held much of my framework. As I began to dig into this, I, I came to understand that dispensationalism wasn't a part of the historic church at all. But dispensationalism originated in a charismatic vision a young woman called Margaret MacDonald experienced in Scotland in 1830. Pause. I have no problem with God giving people dreams and visions. I think it's biblical. It's accurate. It happens we talked about that already today's service, didn't we? I believe it happens. And in that vision, that dream, Margaret saw that there was a secret return of Christ. And this was taken up then later by John Nelson Darby, who lived between 1800 and 1882. A gifted Bible teacher who was obsessed with the restoration of the state of Israel. Darby then incorporated it as the basis of his theology. And it enabled him to show how God could have two covenant peoples and deal with each separately. Darby developed his ideas in a series of prophetic conferences in England and Canada in the years following. It must be said though, that such an interpretation of the Bible never previously existed in the entire history of the church, became a novelty based on a vision. And from it, we get books like the Left Behind series from Tim LaHaye and the really great blockbuster videos by Kurt Cameron, the Left Behind series. And that was kind of the prevalent thought. And it has spread and become very, very popular and wide across many, many circles. Now, can I give you some biblical reasons why I, my view has shifted? And in case you're wondering where I land, and I... When it comes to these um, non-essentials, I try not to offer my opinion too often, but rather encourage people to search scripture and get in there and help you. But I realize many of you have never had this thought process, and I I don't want to... um, How do I say this, Lord? My goal is not to tell you what to think, but I also don't want to be irresponsible as a shepherd to let you just think whatever, either. I want to be faithful to the text, and I want to share with you how I came to the conclusion of holding what is considered the inaugurated amillennialism view, how I got to that point and that place. One of the reasons why is because I believe the best way to interpret scripture is with scripture. You have to let scripture interpret scripture, which is why the best way to understand the book of Revelation is not through current events, but rather through the Old Testament. Why? Because the Old Testament was the scriptures that the audience John was writing to would have been able to understand what he was writing because it can't mean something to them or it can't mean something to us that it didn't mean to them. And they would have had and understood the Old Testament and the prophets and those things. And that's how they would have interpreted and understood what John was trying to say. It was the filter grid to understand the symbolic symbolism of the apocalyptic language that he was using and writing in the dreams and visions that he had. Scripture interprets scripture. That's why Jesus in his discourse about last days here in this chapter has referenced three Old Testament passages for us. He used uh, Daniel already. He used Joel chapter 2, and he talked about Noah today. In Joel chapter 2, all of that language that he's talking about, the sun darkened, giving no light, stars falling from the... That's all apocalyptic language, a part of what Joel prophesied in Joel chapter 2. For those of you who are Bible scholars and have been around scripture or definitely in the Pentecostal charismatic area, you understand at the end of Joel chapter two is some of our favorite verses. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh sons and daughters are going to prophesy old men are going to dream dreams and young men are going to have visions and I'm going to pour it out on my men servants and my maid servants alike it was a prophecy that Joel was giving about the last days not the pre last days but the last days and we already know in acts chapter 2 Peter stands up on the day of pentecost and says um by the way What's happening right now is the fulfillment of what Joel prophesied, that we be in the last days. Friends, has the Holy Spirit been poured out on all flesh without measure? Yes or yes? Yes. Very good. Yeah. Which means that we have to be in the last days. Some of you are like, yeah, but but, but isn't the millennium going to be a little bit different than the last days? Well, if you're interpreting it that way, possibly. But here, in, when Jesus is writing in verse, or says, and what we have is verse 34, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away from the scene. Let me ask you a question. Has the hearer, was the hearer of this originally, are they dead today? Yeah. They're not around. That word... Generation comes from the Greek, genea, G-E-N-E-A. And it's typically translated a generation. And that can mean one of two things based on the context. In one setting, it could mean that we are contemporaries. In fact, when Jesus talks and rebukes the Pharisees, he often says, oh, this wicked generation. He's talking about his contemporaries like millennial, baby boomers, Gen Zers, right? The generation of people, contemporaries, or it also is used to reference an age, a time period, an undefined period of time. I'll say it another way. It references a dispensation of time that began but has not yet concluded. So that time has not concluded because he has not come back yet. Are we tracking? So I think that's a, a huge part. The other thing that's really important is to recognize the word coming. This is used all throughout. In fact, it's even the same language that Thessalonians uses when it says, we will be caught up together with him. It is the same kind of Greek word and, and a similar Greek word is what you see here when Jesus says the son of man will come. The son of man is coming. And this is a word that uh, is a term used for inauguration parade where there would be a trumpeter who would herald the arrival of a king returning from battle. It would be a likened in our day to, I don't know, streets being filled with people in red, white, and yellow gear, celebrating a bus traveling down a street because a Super Bowl team has returned. I mean, that was a great place to say, yeah, that's right, we champs. We are the champions." That's the picture. In fact, that's the prophetic picture that occurred in Jesus' life when he rode in on Matthew, what is it, Matthew 21, when he rode the donkey into the city of Jerusalem and everybody started waving branches, they started outside of the city and traveled with him into the city celebrating the arrival of the king. This word coming is an inauguration parade where a trumpet would herald the return. And those who were a part of supporting the king would go outside of the city, get caught up in the moment and in the processional and ride back into the city declaring his victory. Declaring him as the victor, the king over all. That's the language that's being used here in scripture. The second thing that I need you to understand is the word taken. When he talks about This is just, I'm just using Jesus' words here to understand what Jesus taught us about his return. It's not secretive. Why? We read this and we see those those principles or that parable where he says, hey, it's gonna be like this in the last day. Two men will be working in the field. One will remain and the other will be taken. See, pastor, they get left behind. Pause. All through the New Testament parables that Jesus teaches... It's only the wicked who are taken outside for judgment and punishment. They're taken out of the city. Take this wicked servant, he says of the unforgiving servant parable. Take these and give them eternal punishment. It is the unrighteous who get taken, not the righteous. Let me tell you another reason why I believe that. Because he sets up all of his understanding of verse 40 and verse 41 with the understanding within the context of, hey, remember what happened in Noah's day. Let me ask you a question. For those of you who remember your Bible school stories, Noah and his family were righteous. God looked for a righteous person to preserve and to keep and they went inside the ark and when the floodwaters came, who remained alive on the earth? The righteous or the unrighteous? The righteous did. Who were taken and swept away? The righteous or the unrighteous? The unrighteous. That's the context. Friends, I believe... And I've come to this understanding and studying just this passage and several others that we need to understand that Jesus, his return is not going to be a secretive silent thing where only the good Christians early get to go. Everybody else has to stick it out until the end. No, I really believe that when he returns, he's returning and something great is going to happen and be reestablished in the process that those who are with him will remain with him and those who are unrighteous those who receive wicked judgment they're going to be taken from the midst why? because when Jesus returns he he vanquishes all evil, all sin all demons all powers and principalities all evil that has tainted our world, all pain gets vanquished and removed and he makes all things here new. That is what scriptures, I believe Jesus is enthroned and ruling and reigning right now. The Bible says he's seated at the right hand of God. Satan, while it is true, has not been finally bound. He is currently limited in power because Jesus descended into hell, took back the keys of death and and, hell, and, and took them captive and led those captive out. He took back the power to rule and reign the dominion that was given to him because Adam and Eve messed the whole thing up to begin with, and then they gave it over to the enemy. Jesus came did the work on the cross, took back the power and dominion of our world. And so Satan is, while he is still present, he is limited. He stands as our accuser, true. He is roaming the earth right now, seeking whom he may devour. But he is restricted to certain boundaries. He cannot cross the bloodline in your life that Jesus has purchased and washed you in. He cannot take anything from your spiritual inheritance that we don't first surrender through sin and acts of our own will, and if you were wondering if I'm preaching or teaching, I'm doing a little bit of preaching and you can amen if you want. He does bring a final tribulation and persecution to the way of the world. That's true. But the greatest weapon to combat the deception of is God's word. It is alive and active and divisive, dividing between what is a lie and what is true, what is your emotional state and what your feelings about a truth is and what God's word actually says because his word will not fail. His word will not pass away. It's gonna stand there. So his word is our weapon. He's given us agency through Jesus Christ to act as his ambassadors on this earth, pushing back the forces of darkness and taking claim to the life and the kingdom that wherever we go, the kingdom of God goes with us. Evil has a scheme. It's to advance through lies, disordered desires and normalized in a sinful society. But we have been given the keys to the kingdom. And whatever we bind and say, no, Satan, you don't get to have that. That lie. No, 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 that's not true. Here's truth. We'll have been bound on in heaven and whatever we permit him to lie and perpetuate in our lives and in our worlds, he takes ground and perpetuates and torments and gets into our lives. But we have been given the ability to live the way of truth, not just proclaim it. We embody it as ambassadors on this place. And in case you're wondering if I made all of that up just because I didn't want to do rapture practice anymore as a kid. Let me give you some scriptures, Matthew 16, 9, Ephesians 6, 11 through 12, Ephesians 4, 7 through 10, Colossians 1, 20 and 23, Philippians 2, 9 and 11, Matthew 12, 29, Luke 10, 18, Revelation 12, 9, John 12, 31, Colossians 2, 15, and Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, just to name a few. The king's return will not be silent secrets but the king's return will be a surprise. The king's return doesn't need to strike fear in you to where you're afraid like a thief will be breaking in. No. But it should stir some urgency. It should stir some anticipation. It should stir some hope that as troubling as life might get here, He's still ruling and reigning. That what we might endure for a little while isn't final for us. Jesus said in verse 36, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Not the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. In other words, there are some things as it relates to the end times and last days that will remain a mystery. the late 80s early 90s there was a TV program on Christian television it played a lot in my household there was a certain man would sit behind a desk and his wife who had a lot of makeup and way too much hairspray would come and talk about the current events of the day and they would present how these events mean certain things in the timeline of what revelation is understood Throughout my life, there's been books like The Bible Code where you can, if you understood it just right, you could decode and understand exactly when Jesus is going to come back. Friends, it's like chasing a shadow, you're never going to catch it. Why? Because Jesus said, No one knows. In 1987, there was a book that came out 88 Reasons Jesus is Returning in 1988. Last time I checked, we've surpassed that moment. To The scare of the turn of the century of 2000. It's all going to be over. Look out. Everybody get your canned goods and your dry food. Store it up. The apocalypse is upon us. 23 years later, he's still waiting for his church to be radiant and holy friends we tend to fear what we don't know and what we can't control and in our attempt to limit our fear and try to control uncontrollables we try to grasp for knowledge and eliminate the mystery but in that pursuit hear me we're eating from the wrong tree again we're eating of the tree of the knowledge of good. Oh, here's G- he's coming back now. It's gonna be one world order. Let me interpret revelation through the current event times and we're gonna have one currency and it's gonna be one thing. And this is who the antichrist is. It's gotta be Ronald Reagan because Ronald has six letters. Reagan has six letters. And guess what? His middle name has six letters too. Six, six, six. It's over. I'm not, friends, I'm not making that up. That was a popular opinion where we're trying to read into a timeline based on our life, into what scripture is saying. And that's not how scripture is to be interpreted. That's not what Jesus meant. And while it will be not a silent or secretive return, it will be a surprise. You cannot grow in knowledge and limit your need to trust in the sovereignty of God. You're not going to know. I'm not going to know. You can pull out all the charts and try to interpret it all you want. I'm just telling you, you're better off putting your energies in knowing the God who is good rather than trying to figure out what he's going to do, when he's going to do it. And here's what you need to know. While the king's return won't be secretive, it will be a surprise. Oh, but the king's return, it will be soon. And it's going to be spectacular. It's going to be spectacular. His return will bring the culmination and restoration of all of our earth and his redemption and will be complete and our salvation will be complete. Dr. Joel Mudamale a theologian current day says it like this Jesus will right all the wrongs the beautiful garden city of Eden will return and we will enjoy the presence with Jesus himself there will be no need for a temple in the new heavens and the new earth for the living temple and the fulfillment of every covenant promise reigns and rules in perfection by King Jesus Jesus' words won't pass away They are an anchor for our soul in the moments when we have to acknowledge we don't know it all and we can't control uncontrollables. Don't get distracted by what you don't know. Get diligent and dedicated in getting to know God himself. That is what we can know. We can know him personally, intimately, and that's where eternal life begins. It's in knowing him. But his coming, it will be absolutely spectacular. Would you stand and close your eyes with me? I want to read to you how spectacular it's going to be. Listen to these words from Revelation 21 and Revelation 22, a selection of them. These, this is the soon coming king. This is the spectacular event that will transpire at some point it says then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was gone before and I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband I heard a loud shout from the throne saying look God's home is now among his people he will live with them and they will be his people God himself will be with them. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or pain or crying. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the spring of water of life. To all who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, crystal as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. And it flowed down the center on the main street. Each side of the river grew a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. These leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything for the throne of God and the lamb will be there and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and there will be no night there no need for lamps or sun for the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever look I am coming Blessed are those who obey the words of prophecy written in this book. Look, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit from the tree of life. Outside the city are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idol worshipers, and all who love to live a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright morning star, the spirit, and the bride. They say, come. Let all who hears this say, come. Come. Let anyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who desires to drink freely from the water of life. He who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come on, if that resonates in your heart, would you make that your prayer aloud today? Say it with me. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. God, this is the cry of your radiant people eagerly awaiting your return. Come, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your word that brings us life and hope and truth. And that the invitation is always open for us to come to you and be satisfied. we Thank you. And we give you praise. In the name of the Father who loves us, the Son who died for us, and the Holy Spirit who lives in us, we pray. Amen. I really hope today's message was life-giving. As a church, we wanna help you encounter God and take another next step in your allegiance to Jesus. I wanna ask you to take a step right now, in fact. Would you just share this message with a friend? Maybe post it on your social, text a coworker the link. Just be sure to include something that you learned or how it impacted you personally. When you do that, you get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in someone else. And don't forget to visit our central hub faithchurchks.org. You'll find other next steps that you can take in your faith, including giving and partnership with us as we help others encounter Jesus like you've encountered Him. Hey, we love you. And until we get to hang out again, remember, don't shrink back from your faithful allegiance to King Jesus.